The topic of the conversation today, Jewish fundamentalism and the dynamics of contemporary religion, is going to introduce uh, the question of fundamentalism and how it is reflective of trends in contemporary uh, religion and religious life in, in the West. Um, that will set us up then for thinking about Jewish fundamentalism and forms of Jewish extremism and questions of Jewish power in the contemporary world. So for today, I really want to set the stage by thinking through this category that we use, fundamentalism, and then looking at a few examples of Jewish fundamentalism. Further examples will then be explored in subsequent, um, subsequent I guess these are all lunch yeah. classes that we're having. So as far as the word fundamentalism, this is a word commonly used in English, um, not always used all that carefully. But it's a word that's been around for some time, nearly 100 years. Does anyone know, if you thought about where in America is a kind of hotbed of fundamentalism, where does fundamentalism kind of take off and take root as a phenomenon in American culture, where would you locate it? Yes? We would think the South, right down in the Bible Belt. Do you know where it really first finds its most major support and where it's promulgated? Southern California. Southern California, yes. In fact, the Milton and Lyman Stewart were oil moguls who were very successful here. And they supported the printing and circulation of a pamphlet called The Fundamentals as Testimony of Truth. And so the, the fundamentals was, this was an attempt to try to reaffirm what the Stewart brothers, but also a whole group of Christian theologians in the United States, and also from Darby, who was a, a theologian in England, what they saw as the important Christian principles to be asserted in the sort of increasingly modern world in which Protestant Christians found themselves. And this was, um, at that point, an exclusively Protestant phenomenon. And that set of fundamentals doesn't just reaffirm existing consensus among Christians about what are the core beliefs that characterize their religion. It's a very creative assemblage of ideas that reflects a reaction to certain trends in modern Western society and in particular in modern liberal forms of Christianity. So the five fundamentals that are articulated in this pamphlet and in the, the broader fundamentalist discourse that's then supported in the United States are as follows. The five fundamentals are, first, the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was in fact divine. This is the first of their fundamentals. The second is the claim of the virgin birth. The third is the notion of blood atonement, that by dying on the cross, Jesus dies for the sins of humanity. The fourth is the notion of the bodily resurrection, that, that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. And the fifth is the notion of the inerrancy of scripture. Not quite the same as literalism, though sometimes they refer to it as that, that it's about the literal truth of scripture. But the inerrancy of scripture is perhaps a more accurate way of describing this idea because they often read scriptures in ways that are not entirely literal, but the notion is that scriptures are never wrong. And so the claim of the inerrancy of scripture is the notion that the Bible, and here for Christian fundamentalists, this refers to the Old Testament, as they call it, and the New Testament, that these are inerrant, meaning that they, they represent infallible truths. Um, 
Obviously, there's something very Christian in this articulation of the word fundamental or the idea of fundamentalism. But it's an idea that now gets applied in new and creative ways, especially when academics use the, notion, the term fundamentalist. And some academics have, have said it's, it's just too tainted of a term, it's too problematic, and we shouldn't use it. Um, and others, I'd say a, a larger group of academics have said it's, it's a useful term as long as we're careful to think about what fundamentalism is. We can use this word. It doesn't necessarily belong to a particular time period and a particular religious tradition. It can be helpful in describing a certain trend in modern religious life. And so I want to try to use the word that way. I want to think about what this word means and how it can be helpful, how it can be a useful category. And in order to do that, we need to be very cautious because in general, I think it's fair to say when the word fundamentalist is thrown around, especially in modern Western culture, it can be a kind of slur. It's used to critique a religious worldview as being um, out of step, uh, as being um, extremely inflexible, and as being irrational. And there are ways in which all of those characteristics could be associated with some fundamentalist movements. But I want us to try to bracket off for a moment or suspend our sense of judgment about fundamentalist movements so that we can understand why they're meaningful and why they're powerful to so many people. So trying to keep that perspective in mind, we should think about fundamentalism as a particular kind of religious ideology that has developed in response to the conditions of modernity. And fundamentalism, while it often reflects itself as harkening back to the pristine historical purity of a, of a moment in a religious history, it is in fact a distinctly new and very modern phenomenon because it's a reaction to the conditions of modern life. So thinking of that as something that humans do, it's necessary for us then to think of fundamentalism as not being crazy. When we call it crazy, essentially that would be to say that people who are fundamentalists are suffering a psychiatric illness. But psychiatric illness doesn't have a kind of broad social pattern where people act rationally in accordance with some kind of religious discourse that they accept. Psyche, if we think of you know, crazy as really referring to a, a, a psychiatric condition in which a person's mind is, is, is not functioning in a healthy way, um, these tend to be very idiosyncratic and very individual. Whereas fundamentalism reflects a broad religious phenomenon in the modern world. Now interestingly, it was believed by many sociologists of religion in around the 1970s that religion would cease to function as a potent force in modern life. And that as modernity became increasingly urban and increasingly secular, religion would be largely abandoned for what secular society has to offer. And that as we approach the close of the 20th century, it was predicted that religion would no longer be an important operative category in modern life. This turned out to be very wrong. <laughs> and people who predicted the demise of religion have since had to uh, revise that prediction substantially because starting in the 1980s, we see this huge uptick 
in the number of people who affiliate not only with established religious traditions, but with new versions of them, these fundamentalist versions of them. So now there's a couple of different, different subsets of what we can call fundamentalism. So I wanna get those terms out there before we think too carefully about what exactly fundamentalism is. Uh, one is fundamentalists are in some cases activists. What we could call, we could call them um, religious actors who are seeking to create some kind of change in the broader society in which they live. But others, a different subset of fundamentalists are traditionalists. And traditionalists largely just want to be left alone, even though they might reject many of the values and categories of modern secular society. They just want to do their own thing and insulate themselves as much as is reasonably possible, or even extremely possible, um, from the, the trends of the society in which they live. So the Amish or some Hasidim in the United States would be an example of traditionalists who are looking to retract from or retreat from modern secular life rather than to conquer it, which is what we find in other forms of fundamentalism. So fundamentalism also involves a kind of traditionalism. So the main opponent for most religious fundamentalists and the thing that seems to um, motivate the kinds of changes that are created in modern Western religions by fundamentalism is the rise of secular democracy. Secular democracy poses a serious challenge to uh, many traditional uh, religious groups because it advances an alternative idea about where authority comes from for the values especially of the state. In a secular democracy, where do laws come from? Okay, and how does government become the government and get the authority to pass certain laws? It's, it's elected by the will of the people, right? The will of the people. And the idea is that people choose who will be their government and people also choose what the laws of that government will be. What happens if your elected leaders pass laws you don't like? Like, I don't know, prohibition. It was a law and then it became unpopular. What happens to it? It's repealed and is no longer the law. If people decide it's legal to smoke marijuana and therefore there's a majority of people who elect officials who then make that the law, it, it, it's the law, right? So we basically have the notion of, of that the law comes from essentially the will of the people with some limitations placed in a constitutional democracy on certain founding principles of the state. Nonetheless, what is the absent source of authority in that legal system for ordering society? God, God right? God, it is, it's not based on divine law. It's based on humans working together. And that kind of secular way of establishing the authority of the state is a major challenge to how some people envision the very basis of authority for law itself. This is in particular a challenge for religious traditions that aspire to see themselves reflected in the broader culture and in the government in which they live. So for Christianity and Islam, this is particularly a challenge to suggest that the state can function completely independently of some perspective on divine will strikes some as a departure 
from the very purpose of the legitimacy of the state. So in the United States, some Christian fundamentalists argue that America was established to be a Christian nation. Um, they note that the founding fathers were all Protestants and that the notion of the wall separating church and state was meant to protect different forms of Protestant Christianity from each other, not to render the state secular. And they argue that when America functions in accordance with divine will, the state prospers. And when America doesn't function in accordance with divine will, the state suffers. And of course, if we look at the progression of modern secular democracies, the kinds of policies that they advance and the kinds of values that are reflected in their popular culture and in the general ethos of those societies is in fact a distinct departure from more traditional norms that have been associated with Western religions. So if we think about the cultural logic of the modern West and the kinds of ideas that are advanced as if not exactly normative, at least acceptable and in some cases celebrated, we see a, a list of things that are troubling to some Western fundamental or Western, um, let's say, religious traditionalists. And this helps inspire the fundamentalist response. So we see a, a valuing of money and material possessions as well as the value of fame and celebrity. So this materialism and this focus on the cult of the famous individual. Here we are in, in Los Angeles, right, where fame, fame was born here. Um, there, are, there are those who see this as an encroachment of a godless set of values into their society. In fact, the value that we place on entertainment itself is one of the ways that secular values and, and secular, one could really argue secular ideology, uh, is able to permeate the society. If we look at the kinds of things that are in our films, in our books, in our music, in our other forms of public, public popular entertainment, it, it is not a godly form of entertainment that we find in popular society. It tends to, in fact, celebrate other values that are part of the cultural logic of the modern West. First of all, capitalism, the notion that almost anything can be commodified, bought, and sold, including especially entertainment, which becomes a global commodity. There's the notion of personal freedom and personal choice. Western secular democracies, especially Western secular capitalist democracies, value personal freedom and personal choice because that's the engine that runs society. In a capitalist, secular democracy, the personal choice to vote chooses the government. The personal choice to work and to spend in particular ways is what causes some to succeed and others to fail. If you have a business that people choose not to buy your product, the business fails. If people do choose to buy your product, the business succeeds. And so much of what happens in the society is an attempt to appeal to individuals making choices about what they want. So it becomes an advertising society in which everything is commodified and distributed to individuals who make choices. And success goes to those who are successful in persuading, in persuading people to make certain kinds of choices as opposed to others. And the state doesn't regulate what kinds of choices people should make except in the cases of criminality, of where something is deemed criminal. But the value of this secular democracy is the idea that people are generally free to make the choices of what they see as their own pursuit of happiness. 
and both the economy and the government are created by those acts of individual volition, of individual choice, selecting what they want. There's also the notion that opinions, feelings, personal perspectives, and personal experiences are value, valuable and cannot be judged. That individuals can have their own perspective on things, they can have their own opinions about things, and that this is not something that another person should control. Freedom of conscience. This is another value of the modern secular West that really poses a challenge to how traditionalists, or in, in this case, activist fundamentalists, wish to see society. All of these views, in some ways, marginalize and certainly challenge religious claims to power over society. And of course, there's the role of technology. Technology, practicality, utility, quick convenience. We live in an application society where technology has been successful in improving people's lives and it's valued as a useful tool for accomplish, accomplishing any number of things. And there's, again, no control on what that's supposed to be, but it's clear that this is something that modern secular Western democracies see as valuable, useful, important, and desirable. So fundamentalism is modern in the sense that it's characterized by a rejection or a counter challenge to these challenges that are presented to them. Western secular society is a kind of ideology. It represents a value system, an ethos, a worldview, and it presents a certain idea about how society should be ordered. And that notion of how society should be organized, of how authority should be established, and how laws are created, is a challenge to how religious fundamentalists wish to see their society. But it's not a rejection of everything in the modern secular democratic world. So for instance, um, technology is an interesting example. Um, some fundamentalists are suspicious of technology and reject it. Again, the Amish are a really interesting example here. Coming from Pennsylvania, um, being near Lancaster County, that's a great example of you see people driving in horses and buggies. Um, but most fundamentalists embrace and use technology and they use it very effectively. Um, in fact, in, in some cases where digital technologies have been made accessible in certain societies with the idea that this would modernize that society and render it more moderate, um, we found the opposite to be the case, that it's actually fundamentalist groups that are more effective at using, for example, the internet to share their message and, and they seem to do so um, very skillfully. There's therefore a whole series of characteristics that have been associated with the notion of fundamentalism. This was really made uh, famous by Martin Marty and Scott Appleby. Um, my brother's name is Martin and I, I kind of wish our last name was Marty as well so he could kind of have the same name twice. But uh, these ideas of fundamentalism, the characteristics of fundamentalism um, are basically as follows. That it's an embattled form of spirituality that is established in response to some kind of perceived threat. It fights secularist enemies of religion and sees the world as in fact in a cosmic war between good and evil. It tries to retrieve core beliefs of the religious system and to protect those core beliefs. Um, in some cases, it withdraws from mainstream society, 
But in other cases, it seeks to transform the larger society under the guidance of charismatic leadership. And of course here, the, the focus on charismatic leadership. Um, and in fact, even the use of popular entertainment in order to utilize charismatic leadership to motivate people and appeal to them in order to get them to choose fundamentalism is very prominent. We see this with televangelism. Um, there are some extremely famous evangelists. I love listening to, to um, Christian evangelical radio or um, watching televangelists on Sunday morning. Um, they, these are like, this is, this is an incredible example of religion um, in the contemporary world. It, it recognizes that it's functioning in a society where fame matters, where charisma matters, and where popular entertainment is a mechanism for disseminating religious views in order to make them desirable, popular, and to be selected by people from the population. And especially in the United States, Christian fundamentalism has been very successful in this respect. This is a utilization of aspects of modernity and postmodernity, not purely a rejection. There's the notion then of trying to resacralize secular society, the idea that society has been desacralized, that it was once godly, it is now godless, and it's the mission of fundamentalists to resanctify it by reintroducing religion. And they do so by developing an actionable ideology meaning it's an ideology where it's clear what it is they need to do. Either retreat from society and create their own cordoned off way of life, or engage with the broader culture in order to transform it. And that becomes a divine mission for those who perform that kind of crusade against the godlessness of secularity around them. Karen Armstrong, would say that what fundamentalists do is they treat their religious mythos as logos. So now what that means, she says mythos is the aspect of religion that's really concerned with meaning rather than with practical or physical things. So it's similar to art, poetry, music, literature. It's part of how people construct meaning in their lives and part of how they create a shared discourse for talking about what things are meaningful. And that that's very different from logos, which instead of looking for the exploration and expression of meaning, of feelings, and of relationship, logos is concerned with practical, scientific, physical things, understanding how the world works in order to control and use it. So the development of building technologies, agricultural technologies, these are the matters of logo, which is logos, which is interested in the how rather than the why of things. And fundamentalism, she suggests, is, a, is characterized by a confusion of these two or a conflation of these two categories. And she argues, and it's not entirely clear that this is completely historically the case, but she argues that in pre-modern worlds, it was more the case that mythos was treated separately from logos. And therefore, religion was not as much the basis of contentions over how society should be conducted, or at very least, it wasn't as much in conflict with science. Now, of course, there's plenty of religious violence in the pre-modern world. There's plenty of conflict with science in the pre-modern world. Nonetheless, I think these two categories are interesting for thinking about the dynamics of contemporary fundamentalism. 
because when one asserts that their mythos is a logos, that their religious traditions and ideas are in fact the universal truth that reflects all kinds of truth, including scientific truths, this then becomes the basis of an intractable form of conflict. And in fact, it's very interesting to see that some of the biggest advocates and leaders of contemporary fundamentalism were trained as scientists rather than having as much formal training in their own religious tradition. So this partial rejection, partial embrace of the conditions of modern society creates a very volatile and potentially very violent set of circumstances for religious actors in the contemporary world. And it raises the question about the relationship between religious fundamentalism and violence. So I had a, uh, one, my most popular undergraduate course um, is on religion and violence. And I, I always ask the, the class, you know, why, why are you so interested in studying religion and violence? I, I mean, I find this subject really depressing, but over time I've become very interested in it, but it's, it's disturbing. You know, of all the things you could study, like why don't you take a class on Plato? Why are you taking a class on contemporary religion and violence? Um, and they'll, they'll often so, you know, give me the, the explanation that they're, they're, they're curious about the dynamics of the contemporary world, they're interested in contemporary forms of conflict, and fair enough. Um, but I had one student who I think gave me the best explanation ever. He said, Dr. Lachter, you put the fun into fundamentalism. <laughs> <laughs> I gave that kid an A. Yeah, that, was, that, that, that was the best. Um, but fundamentalism as a, a, a category of contemporary conflict is actually, you know, especially in complete you know, opposite trends of what we would have expected in the 1970s, fundamentalist justifications of violence in the contemporary world are really, really common. And Mark Jurgensmeyer from UC Santa Barbara, um, sort of a local, uh, he has come up with an interesting set of categories for thinking about how fundamentalism becomes associated with, with conflict. Um, one is he says that fundamentalists see the world as reflective of a cosmic war. So cosmic war is the notion that there is a conflict in the divine realm, in the metaphysical realm. There's a conflict between the forces of good and the forces of evil, between light and darkness. And that this conflict is then reflected, it's manifested in conflicts on earth. And it becomes a mechanism for reading the contemporary world and human conflicts. It's a way of saying myself, my group, we are reflective of divine will. We are the soldiers for the forces of goodness. We are the sons of light. And that group, our enemies, they are in fact merely the present reflection of this millennia-long conflict between the forces of good and the forces of evil in the world. And they are the children of darkness. They are the forces of evil. And any given present conflict is then rendered merely a moment in this very long timeline of conflict between the forces of good and the forces of evil, creating a sort of cosmic scenario for any given conflict between actual human beings and seeing that conflict as reflective of the forces of good and evil in the world. And those who are, in fact, fighting on the side of the forces of good they are cosmic heroes. They are soldiers for God. They have an incredibly meaningful place in the world. And 
Again, if we try to suspend our judgments for a moment in order to understand how religious violent actors think and what it is that attracts them, because fundamentalism of various sorts, violent and nonviolent, or might call it the not yet violent, um, it attracts many millions of people around the world. It attracts many millions of people in the United States. And of course, in the modern world that's focused much more on materialism, much more on individual freedom and individual choice, fundamentalism gives people a place in the world. It gives them something to do. It creates a reality in which they have an important task, a divine purpose that gives their life meaning. Now in a Western secular democracy, what's the meaning of life? Why isn't anybody saying anything? <laughs> Money? That's not a very satisfying answer. To live? That's kind of a default proposition. Freedom. Freedom for what? Well, that's really great. Do you know what happens when I talk about the question of like, what is this notion of, of, of the, the, both the anonymity and the, the anxieties, the alienation of modernity created by freedom of choice. You know who identifies with that problem in my classes? Second semester seniors. <laughs> and I say, what are you gonna do with your life? And they say, stop asking me that question. And I'll have students say, no, this is really making me anxious. The, the world is filled with choice, but that doesn't mean that's an easy thing or a good thing. It's a difficult thing. What are, what are they supposed to do when they grow up, right? It's a, it's a weighty question and it's kind of exhilarating and exciting when you're in high school or you're a college freshman, you could be anything. But then as you go on, you have to make choices. You have to be something, one thing. What's it gonna be? How do you know, how do you make the right choice? And then what's it for? To make money and consume goods until you die? Really, what's it for? And that anxiety about what is the purpose of the individual and what is the meaning of what they do, fundamentalism has an answer. It says your, your purpose in this world, your job in this world is to go and make society godly again because the forces of evil have taken over. The wolves are at the doorstep and you are going to be the soldier for God who brings God back into society, right? It's compelling. It's, a, it's at very least, it's an idea that gives life meaning for people in a context where secular Western democracy doesn't do that for us. It doesn't choose meaning for us and give it to us. It lets people have the choice to select that on their own. And so of course people can choose to have religions. They can choose to create their own religion if they wish. They can construct meaning in their lives any ways that they want but it's kept out of the public square largely, and it's part of personal choice on the individual private level. And for some, that just isn't good enough. And those who really seek to bring the sacred as they see it, their own particular religious ideology, into the public realm and make it the basis of the social order and of the state and of the legal structure of society, those are fundamentalists. That's the way we're using this term. It describes that kind of ideology, and it's responding to these kinds of distinctly modern and now ultimately postmodern concerns about alienation and meaning in people's lives. And it's a very quick, very tidy solution to those problems. Now, why terrorism then? What's the role of violence in fundamentalist ideologies? And here, 
we see the purpose of what Jürgen Meyer calls symbolic violence. When one wishes to represent oneself as strong against an enemy who is in fact stronger, symbolic violence can be very useful. Now, to call violence symbolic doesn't mean that it isn't devastating, but it is indeed symbolic. It has the purpose of making a statement. And the statement is, I am not as weak as you think I am, and you are not as strong as you think you are. That's the purpose of symbolic violence. This is the purpose of terrorism. And it makes these statements because the spread of secular nationalism has gone really virtually around the world. It's a very powerful way of ordering society. And it does so by acquiring to itself what um, uh, Max Weber, the famous sociologist, said is sort of the key characteristic of the modern state, which is that the modern state has a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. Only the police and the military have the legitimacy to say that they are going to use violence and that it's okay. Everyone else must not use it except in, in the exception of you know, when one's life is under imminent danger than self-defense. But choosing to go out and fight an enemy and kill them, only the state can make that, can make that judgment. To utilize violence symbolically, therefore, is almost inherently and by definition a challenge to the state. It says, I reject the authority of the state. I reject their monopoly on violence. I reject their moral legitimacy. And I suggest that that state is not so weak, so strong, and that the opponents to the state, in this case, religious fundamentalist opponents, they argue that they are not so weak. And so it's, in effect, a statement. And it's a statement that brings into violent focus the identity of those who pursue such an ideology. It says that they are holy martyrs. And of course the word martyr, does anyone know where that, what that word means? Greek term? Is a witness. A person whose death bears witness. So that they are holy martyrs, bearing witness to their cause. Bearing witness to the meaning associated with being a religious fundamentalist, of fighting a cosmic war, of being a soldier for God. So now, terrorism, though, as a threat to the state, is part of this fundamentalist challenge that essentially is advancing the value of a theocracy instead of a democracy, right? So democracy is a, is a, a secular form of government. A theocracy is the idea of government, laws, and the structure of society being based on religious ideals, being based on divine will, some particular religious version of divine will, as opposed to human will. And so fundamentalism is in many ways reflective of this tension between those who are advocates of democracy and those who are advocates of theocracy. As religious violence then is utilized as a symbolic method or a symbolic message, again, it's a very, very modern phenomenon. Because how does religious violence get its message out? How do we even know about forms of terrorism that utilize death as a way of attracting our attention? How do we become aware of them? The media. Absolutely. It is a made-for-TV phenomenon. And in fact, being exposed to religious violence up close is really meaningless. It's, it's chaotic. It's, 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 it's not insightful in any way. It doesn't somehow cough up its meaning when you're immediately present to it. 
it only is packaged and expressed discursively as a form of meaning. It only becomes symbolic when it's packaged for us by the media. And the media kind of can't help but perform that function because the nature of violence is that we can't look away. So I remember on 9-11, on I, was, I was actually in volunteer EMT for the Jewish Hatzalah um, ambulance force in, in New York and was dispatched down to, to ground zero just at and after the second collapse. And it was totally chaotic. I had no idea what was going on around me. I couldn't understand what was going on. I would, in fact, my girlfriend, now my wife, she called me from Brooklyn, and I found out more what was going on by people calling me on the phone. I had a friend from Boston who called me, and I understood more of what was happening by talking to people who were watching TV, because where I was was meaningless. Where I was was just ashes falling. It, it, it didn't say anything. But when I finally got out to Brooklyn that night, I watched TV and I found out what people had been experiencing that day. And it, it, it was not somehow an obvious form of meaning to draw out of that very, very chaotic event. Um, and it was, it was just such a sort of devastated area in lower Manhattan that it was, it was just disorienting. In fact, I think the reason why they started calling it Ground Zero was because there were so many areas and just sort of concentric circles of destruction that there was this central area that was the most destroyed, that was ground zero. And then sort of moving out from it were other areas of, of, of partial and semi-destruction until you sort of moved further and further and the city started to look more like itself. And I felt like as I moved further and further from that, I started to understand what 9-11 was. But when you're in the middle of it, in the face of it, it's not meaningful at all, it's chaos and the capacity to turn violent chaos into a meaningful and globally accessible form of discourse, this is what creates the mechanisms for fundamentalist religious violence in the contemporary world. So as we look at theocracy as a kind of alternative to the, the secular democratic state, um, it's interesting that Christians and Muslims have been involved in advancing the notion that their particular form of theocracy should be the basis of starting with particular states and then moving to a global conquest where the entire world would be rendered free by being brought under the protection of their particular form of, sec of, of, of uh, opposition to secular democracy by living within their theocracy. So the discourse often is one that they are sacred warriors looking to liberate humanity from the oppressive forces of secular democracy and render them free by allowing them to live in a Christian theocracy or a Muslim theocracy. And while it starts in particular places, there are more Christian theocrats, for instance, within the United States than in uh, Iraq. There are more Muslim theocrats in Iraq and Syria than there are in the United States. The aspirations are global. Judaism is, of course, a different case. There are no real movements outside of Israel to establish a Jewish theocracy in Sweden or the United States. Of course, that would be absurd. And it's reflective of the fact that Judaism has developed since rabbinic period as a, a religion of the diaspora. It has accommodated itself to the notion of living within diaspora and it accepts that it doesn't reflect the 
political will of the broader society or the broader state in which they live, but that rather Jews are a minority. And so in general, Jewish fundamentalists historically have been more of the traditionalist form. They have sought to withdraw. And while it's become somewhat more of a challenge as modernity has created the phenomenon of pluralism, where people are exposed to other religious ideologies, Clifford Geertz uh, said that um, the, the primary condition of modernity is that no one can be left alone anymore. And there's, there's something very true about that. Real people of particular religious orientations are exposed to other people of particular religious orientations. And traditionalists in its purest form would be people who didn't know they were traditional. That's just what society looks like. But in modernity, even traditionalists know that they are deliberately different from someone else and that there are competing worldviews out there. And so most of the traditionalist fundamentalists who are Jewish outside of the land of Israel have sought to withdraw rather than conquer the societies in which they live based on a nearly 2,000 year legacy of accepting that it's neither required nor desirable for Jews to try to render the states in which they live Jewish. Even though I think there is a national menorah now or something. But there, there, there is no attempt to say America is only legitimate if it's a Jewish country. Rather, the attempts of most fundamentalists are to create their own groups and communities and to be left alone. But this is different with regard to the case of Israel. The 20th century has created a new set of challenges for Jewish fundamentalists by establishing, for the first time in a very long time, an autonomous Jewish political region in which they control territory that has a sacred history. And there have been a lot of different kinds of religious responses to this. So, of course, at first, Zionists were virtually all secular. And until the, really under the leadership uh, of Rav Cook and his followers, um, there, there was very little interest among religious, Zionist, uh, among religious Jews in pursuing the path of Zionism. They preferred instead to argue that while it was legitimate to live in the land of Israel, there were many people who were living in the land of Israel, there was no commandment to do so, reflecting an old dispute between Maimonides and Nachmanides about whether or not it's a mitzvah, a commandment to live in Israel. And Maimonides said it was not, and Nachmanides said it was. Uh, so this was a matter of dispute, but many took the Maimonidean position and said it was not required for Jews to live in the land of Israel. And that certainly, at least according to many religious Jews in the late 19th century and the early 20th, they said that a Jewish state in Palestine was totally illegitimate and Jews should rather wait for the Messiah before they establish their own independent polity in the Middle East. And that this would happen then through a miraculous development rather than through human action, especially secular, in many cases, communist Jewish human action. But under the leadership of Rav Cook in the early 1970s especially, developed the Gush Emunim. And they embraced the notion that there is religious meaning in the establishment of the Jewish state, that it is the, as it's called, Reshitz Michatu Latengu, it's the beginning of the flowering of the redemption. Um, it had a religious ideology that, especially after the territories captured in 1967, um, that there was religious meaning associated with territorial expansion. And that Israel should be 
under Jewish control as much of the biblical land of Israel as, pop, as possible. And for some, this was very expansive, including the land under the Euphrates. It depends which passages in the Torah one looks to for thinking about uh, Israel, Israelite territory, but at very least the notion that the West Bank was part of what is called greater Israel. And it found religious meaning in this cause and regarded it as a mitzvah, both to expand Israeli territory and then to maintain it, as well as to try to transform Israeli society from within, that it should be the land of Israel according to the Torah of Israel. So Jewish theocracy, some call it a Torahocracy. And it's a desire for Torahocracy nowhere in the world except in Israel. This has become the flashpoint for a different kind of religious fundamentalism, a more violent form of Jewish fundamentalism or Jewish extremism that we tend not to see outside of the Middle East. Um, so this then led to, in, in, at least in its initiation, the establishment of a settler movement that sought to um, create settlements in 1977 with the rise of Likud. There was the, um, the ability to create 12 settlements that, were, that had the goal of accomplishing this religious ideal of controlling and keeping Jewish the, the West Bank. Um, now, as many people, this then became associated with the Amana Council and the Yesha Council, groups that um, reflected the, the will of different settler groups. There's a lot of diversity um, among the settler movement in Israel uh, today. At, at this point, um, there are over 320 Jews living in the West Bank, and for many it has to do with housing values. Um, and really, like, mortgages and property values drive where people live more than almost anything else. But there is still a prominent religious Jewish ideology in Israel that's associated by prominent rabbis, and we'll talk more about this in, in subsequent classes, um, that see this as a mitzvah, they see this as an important commandment, and that it is more important for Israel to be Jewish and for Israel to occupy the lands of greater Israel than for Israel to be a democracy, and that it's religiously legitimate to uh, dispossess um, exile or kill those who get in their way, the non-Jews, Arab-Palestinians, who get in the way of pursuing this particular religious ideology. It reflects this as a conflict between the people of Israel and the historic people of Amalek. Right? Do we know who Amalek is? People who... We forgot. Yeah, we've forgotten because the commandment, of course, is Zachor. Zachor. Yeah, I, I, it was my bar mitzvah parsha, so I can always lane Zachor at any, at any moment. Um, it's the commandment to remember what Amalek did to the Israelites when they were leaving, uh, that they, they attacked them from behind, attacking the weak and the elderly, that they, that, and therefore when they settle in the land of Israel and become strong, they're commanded, you shall wipe out the people of Amalek, man, woman, child, and beast. They shall be completely annihilated and their memory will be blotted out from under the heavens. Do not forget to do this. And so then the question has become, I mean, this was already dealt with in rabbinic literature, that the people of Amalek are no longer identifiable and the, therefore the mitzvah is really reflective of the need to engage in a kind of personal inner expunging of the, the, the aspect of Amalek from within oneself. But there are those in Israel today who say Palestinians are Amalek and that therefore it's a mitzvah to kill them. 
So this kind of ideology is not somehow unique or idiosyncratic to what's going on in Israel. There are family resemblances between religious fundamentalists of Judaism and Christianity and Islam. They are responding to similar stimuli. The perception of the threat of the spread of the encroachment of secular democratic ideologies. And secular democratic ideologies are willing to make compromises, they're willing to make territorial compromises, social compromises, in order to create a sort of peaceful, prosperous place for people to live their lives. And for some, this is an existential threat, that the encroachment of those values is a threat to their very identity. And in threatening their identities, they respond violently with religious justification for the violence of that response. That's one kind of religious fundamentalism we see associated with Israel, but there's a whole other kind as well. So just lastly, thinking about this other group, Naturi Karta. Right? The Naturi Karta uh, comes from the, the Aramaic term, the guardians on the wall. Um, this is uh, a reflective of a, a story in Chagiga, uh, 70, Jerusalem Talmud, Chagiga 76c, where uh, the rabbi sends his emissaries uh, to a city to inspect it, and the guarders of the city uh, the, the guardians of the city, the Naturi Karta, guardians of the city, they come out and they're the sort of like the police and, and they, he asks them, who are you? And they say, we are the guardians of the city. And uh, the students say, no, you're not the guardians of the city. It's the scholars and scribes inside who truly protect your city. And here the idea is it's not political might, but rather individual piety or group piety that in fact brings divine protection. They argue that the state of Israel is totally illegitimate even though some of them live there and have lived there for many generations before the advent of Zionism. They protest against the state. They say that the secular state of Israel oppresses the freedoms of religious Jews within the state. They argue that the dispossession of Arabs of their land is a violation of halakha, that the state should be disbanded and returned to Arab control, and that all of the state of Israel is a complete violation of the Torah. Now, these look like two very, very different groups. And so we're just talking about these two so far, Gush Emunim and the Notori Karta. But in fact, they are both different responses to the same set of questions and concerns that are generated by the rise of modernity and secularity, the kinds of challenges to the legitimacy of a religious worldview in which people want to live within their own sacred canopy. Some wish to do it by simply being left alone. And then Tori Karta, who live in Brooklyn, and there were some in Montreal, I remember when I lived there, and elsewhere, and even those who live in Israel, they want to mind their own business, in essence. They want to do their own thing, and they reject the legitimacy of what's happening around them, and wish to have their own internal structure of their society. Others seek to reach out and transform the group. And what's happening in that dynamic is reflective of the real challenges of religion to Western society and culture today, and the challenge of religious ideologies as an alternative to the development of the secular state. So, okay, I want to open this up for questions. Uh, any questions you might have, uh, please feel free. Yes. You mentioned uh, the Natur Karta. They, in fact, march with the Amalekim. They march with the, uh, with the Arabs when they have the opportunity Against the, against the Jews or the Israelis. Yeah, they're supporters then of their cause. Have, then we have, of course, as you mentioned, Gush Eminim, or those who are in, in attempting to expand Jewish involvement in, in the West Bank. Um, how do we deal with 
the numbers. Firstly, what are the numbers of the Natura Carta? You mentioned there are about 320,000 are living on the West Bank, not Natura Carta. No. That's a good, yeah, that's Gushemunim. That, that's like settlers who aren't necessarily all Gushemunim, and even Gushemunim has a lot of diversity within it. But. Okay. The, how, how large are they? They get a great deal of publicity. I'm just very interested in knowing about it. Natura Carta claims about themselves that there are several hundred thousand of them, so that there are, I mean, by their estimates, 250 to 300,000. They have a high birth rate, so the, I mean, these numbers aren't small, um, but they're scattered more throughout both parts of Israel and um, parts of North America and, and elsewhere. Um, so people who ascribe to this anti-Zionist, um, religious, fundamentalist, Jewish view um, are not inconsiderable in, in number and size. Um, and you know, these, are, these are actually two aspects of a similar phenomenon. Um, and you know, we find religious fundamentalists fight against each other all the time. But that doesn't mean that they aren't if we want to understand them, all sort of responding to similar conditions in the developments of modernity and secularity. Thank you. I had no idea the numbers were as large as what you mentioned. I thought it yeah. was a very fringe group. They're large and growing, yeah. Uh, uh, yes? Yeah, I wanted to ask if you could say the same thing um, regarding secular political situations where you get fundamentalists in a secular is in our country, the, you have in, within our legislature the Republicans and the Democrats, and they are responding as fundamentalist Republicans and fundamentalist Democrats. And if, it, if there's a, a mirror within the secular life of the fundamentalist religious. So the question is whether there's a kind of secular form of fundamentalism, especially in the political realm. And there, there are those who use that term that way. I think it stretches it a bit far. Um, but there are some interesting similarities in that strongly held political views and strongly held forms of ultranationalism and dedication to the state then tend to recognize the state as itself an inherent and ultimate good for which one may, and in some cases must, kill. Right? Every male in here is in fact signed up for the draft. And we've uh, agreed uh, to be drafted. Right? So we could all be drafted at any moment, guys. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know, we, we, it's not happening currently. But I, I actually am an immigrant. I'm from Canada. I immigrated to the United States. And when I became an American, this ceremony was very focused on whether or not I will be a member of this killing group and not another killing group. Am I willing to assume arms on behalf of the United States? And um, I mean, I, I, I became an American, so I, I signed up for the draft. Actually, I was already a resident alien, so I was already signed up for the draft. I didn't know how to tell them, like, guys, I don't think I'm going to make a very good soldier. But the, <laughs> I left that out because I really wanted my American passport. Uh, but the, the question of um, who, who will kill for whom does share some similarities with this idea of a fundamentalist devotion to a particular cause that's seen as so just that it has a moral override over other concerns. Political disputes, though, if they are indeed secular and not making recourse to divine will, do tend to be largely practical and material about the sharing of goods, services, um, power, and territory. And as such, they are, in general, more negotiable and more resolvable because the terms of what they're disputing are shared. 
whereas cosmic disputes render those conflicts nearly irresolvable. Because people who both see themselves as fighting against the forces of good and evil, they both think they're good and they both think the other one is evil, reflective of a trans-historical conflict in heaven between good and evil, that's a very difficult conflict to resolve. Because there is no compromise, there's only victory or defeat. And, and I don't think that we see quite that dynamic in modern secularity. Yes? Recently, there have been some polls done in Israel among young people, high schoolers and university students, that if I, I believe what they showed was that, and these kids are mostly otherwise secular who were being polled, yet they were, they were you know, the, the results of the poll was large pluralities of them, even the majority in some cases, said we should kill the Arabs. Um, how do you account for that? assuming that it's correct. Um, I'm not familiar with that particular poll, but there's no question that um, Israeli and Palestinian societies have become more polarized over the past few years in particular. Um, and one of the most fertile environments for fundamentalist ideologies are violent environments. And part of the reason why is that suffering violence and having to think through um, especially deaths of people who are close to oneself are difficult when you don't have a greater order of meaning to associate with that violence. Um, so especially when you look at people who are essentially dying randomly, either by random acts from terrorism or by being caught in the crossfire of a, of a military conflict, their deaths aren't actually meaningful, right? Like if, you, if you're part of the collateral damage in Iraq during the American conflict there. Um, several hundred thousand people died that way. Their deaths are not meaningful, right? They just happened to be in the wrong place in the wrong time. No one even really meant to kill them. So how do you make sense out of that? And it's very attractive to say that they're not collateral damage and accidental death, but rather that they're martyrs. And that this martyrdom means that they are now part of a just cause, and that that just cause justifies all kinds of violent resistance, but participating in that resistance is itself meaningful. So for people living in violent contexts, it's attractive to imagine that conflict as, as very, very justified. Because otherwise it's hard to make sense of one's own suffering and experience. Um, and that tends then to ramp up rather than cool down as violence is in the environment. It breeds more violent ideology. And this is part of the, um, the, the strategy of terrorism. The more you terrorize a population, the more you polarize it and extract from it violent response, which is exactly the kind of environment in which terrorism thrives. Terrorism creates a violent environment when they don't have one because they need one. Yes? Is that what you meant by when you were defining a, being a martyr? You said a person uh, whose death means they were a witness or they are a witness to this, the injustices that created the particular situation and that they are bearing witness to the justice of their own religious cause for which they died. So Islam, Christianity, and Judaism have the notion of martyrdom. In Judaism, it's Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of, divine name, of the divine name through death. But it's a death that bears witness to the truth of that religious tradition. And that, that's a kind of deeply religiously ingrained way of understanding death that plays a role in, in some forms of fundamentalist religious violence. Sure. So I, I, I buy into your um, 
factors that lead to fundamentalism, but I have a problem with your factors that tie fundamentalism and violence together. And here's, so if we see it as part of this large cosmic struggle that's being acted out on Earth, um, um, I can understand how that could be linked to violence, but help me understand why that doesn't happen. So you can be a fundamentalist Christian um, who has no place to play in violence, nowhere. You can be a Chabadnik, very fundamentalist, and I think they're not you know, known for their violent behavior. You can be a Buddhist monk, you know, and your violence may be burning yourself, but you're not out to you know, um, convert everyone or to change the world into a theocracy that's Buddhist. So I don't get, you know, and, but all of these people are in a belief that what they're doing, that there is a cosmic struggle that's going on, and the other side has it wrong. I mean, my Christian friends, you know, are always praying for my soul, you know, because I'm not going to be redeemed. Mm, they, you. you know, and, and my Muslim friends, you know, say, you, you don't get it, Brian. You, don't, you haven't really seen the light. But they're not, you know, you know shooting up schoolyards. So I, I don't, but they all have this belief system. So I don't see where the belief system of the cosmic struggle is a one-two connection with the violence because some people can say, no, you know, I see the cosmic struggle, but I'm not going to that violent side. So help me understand that link. Yeah, that's a great question. We spend a lot of time in the religion and violence class figuring out precisely this question, which was what is that relationship between cosmic war religious ideology and actual violence, since some people have the religious ideology that the world is in a cosmic war and that they're soldiers for God, but they don't actually blow anything up or kill anybody. And we see this in the United States in particular. So there's lots of Christian cosmic warriors out there who utilize very militant language. They talk about being warriors. They talk about being willing to lie down their life for the gospel. And they're, they're perfectly at home with that discourse. And Chabad does that too. I mean, that's their language also. But they don't go blow anything up. Yeah. And so one of the questions is, why not? And in the case of at least um, Christian religious fundamentalists, it seems that there is more to be gained in the case of the United States through political maneuvering than there is through violent action. And so it depends on the social and, and political and economic context in which that violent discourse is taking shape. If it's in a very chaotic environment, there's very little to be lost by violence, and that violence might in fact be effective. But in the case of the United States, the cosmic warriors are doing reasonably well. They're not taking over the majority of the federal government, but they're, they're doing fairly well in some state and local governments and school boards. And through political action, the goal is that they will be able to transform the nation slowly but surely. If they engage in forms of political violence or symbolic violence, symbolic violence is largely an act of, de de of desperation by the weak, and it would undermine their cause rather than advance it. They have a lot to lose by doing that. Also, there's a very, very strong central government they're not going to succeed, no matter how many weapons they amass, handheld weapons they amass, they will never succeed in challenging the federal government and overthrowing it. So if the federal government was weak, they might try, but it's strong, there's no purpose. They try instead to transform society through elections. So you're saying it's a tactical decision yeah. and not a, a kind of moral part of their compass, that they're, they're, they make a tactical decision. Well, violence would help, we'd be more violent, but in the US it's more, it's better to, to write a check to a politician. Yeah. You're, it's just a tactical, and there's no theological difference between Habad and um, an extremist, you know, who will blow themselves up from any other religion? Uh, I think these are strategies. Two okay. more questions. Uh, uh, yes. Um, would you please define fundamentalists for me in terms of what they will accept and what they 
the 21st century, such as medical care? Well, it depends on the fundamentalists. Some, of course, are uh, suspicious of medical care. The majority embrace medical care. The majority embrace um, technology in particular as a very, very useful thing. And their main qualm with the 21st century and life in the 21st century is that they don't want to live in a secular democracy. They want to live in a religious theocracy where the laws of the country in which they live are determined by the religious rule of the will of God as they see it, not by popular elections. But therefore, uh, if a woman is ill, she can go to a modern hospital. Uh, yes, that in, in many, not all, but in many cases. But I mean, the, the question of women, of course, is also very interesting. Part of the resistance to contemporary society is a resistance to the changes that have happened, which have included gender roles, right? Gender roles have transformed uh, enormously. I don't, I don't, I don't think my, my grandfather's really changed a lot of diapers, and I've changed a whole bunch of them, right? Like the, the ways that we work, the ways that we uh, think about who can have what kinds of jobs, who can have what kinds of power, what has happened between 1900 and 2014 is a very, very, very big difference. Part of the resistance to that that we see in some fundamentalist societies is that women and women's bodies become the canvas upon which the aspirations of the affirmation of a fundamentalist alternative to modernity are painted and represented. So women then become symbolic of a particular ideological resistance to secularity, and hence the increased covering of women's bodies and veiling of women. Uh, we see this in lots of religious traditions, or at least in a very assertive projection of a particular kind of role for women that rejects the openness of roles for women in modern secularity. Women are treated as symbolic uh, expressions of this kind of conflict uh, to often really tragic ends. Last question. Last question, sure. The last couple of terrorist incidents in Israel have had a religious overtone. Um, and they've been characterized as not political terrorism, but religious terrorism. Do you see that as changing the conflict from something that has a possible political solution to a cosmic thing that won't have a solution? I think it's already been that way for a while. Um, it, at the beginning of the first Intifada, the majority of people, Israeli and Palestinian, who were caught in that conflict um, still regarded it in primarily secular rather than religious, fundamentalist, and cosmic terms. But as the violence of that particular um, conflict dragged on, I think there was a lack of attention to what can happen sociologically among religious actors when caught in a seemingly hopeless and protracted violent debate, violent, violent conflict. It becomes useful to see that conflict in cosmic terms because then even if you lose, you win. You win in that you get to be a soldier for God. Your life gets to be meaningful rather than to live and die fighting for a cause that remains unresolved. That very irresolvability created a problem that by already the, the late 1990s was, was very serious. And I think that much of the, the terrorism we've seen in Israel um, has, has already had a very both political and religious overtone to it. I think those two have been conflated and it's part of what makes that conflict very, very difficult to resolve. Because even if the secular parties who are still the vast majority among Palestinians and Israelis could agree on a practical solution, the religious actors on both sides, both sides, would oppose it violently. And by engaging in violence would derail that solution. 
this is why this class makes me so depressed, yet my, my students still find I put the fun into fundamentalism. I don't know what they're talking about. But it's a very serious problem, and I, I, it's one to manage, but I don't see easy solutions for it. Two quick questions. One is, and, and I, it came up in a discussion on our Israel trip when we were driving on the buses, is why in Judaism do we call people ultra-Orthodox? Why don't we call them fundamentalists? That's a great question, because they, they'll use the term charedim, right? Those who tremble before God. Um, and I think we call them ultra-Orthodox because there's other forms of orthodoxy, right? Of a sort of orthoprax Jewish well, religious group. Right, there's modern orthodox, there's left-wing orthodox. In fact, orthodoxy has far more of a spectrum within it than conservative and reform. And so it's more difficult to label. It's not really one thing, it's many, many different things. The ultra-orthodox, I mean, I don't like that term, ultra-orthodox, I don't know what it means, but those people are fundamentalists, aren't they? In, in most, yeah, I, I think in most cases they are. Um, but, you know, I guess you could ask what kinds of fundamentalists, because you could have people who are not orthoprax in their religious uh, life, who actually embrace a very fundamentalist ideology as a justification for violent action. And so they would be fundamentalists too. So I, I guess it, it's that it doesn't reveal enough. Also, I think Jews haven't typically used this term because it started as a term that Christians used to right. define themselves or each other. Yeah, so that, that's a useful term that Israelis use all the time, right? The black kippah versus the, the knitted kippah. Right. And that really defines it or black hat or striped. Right. And then there's uh, one more question. We were celebrating the last day of Hanukkah. So were the Maccabeans fundamentalists? Um, yes. I mean, it, absolutely. It's interesting that on Hanukkah that we're certainly thinking about and in some ways celebrating an ultra-nationalist group um, that pursued a, a militant agenda for religious reasons and um, did so actually against the will of other members of the group. I think there the difference was that they were successful. And again, thinking about the strategies for religious violence, there was a chance at success when they pursued that violence and they, they achieved it. Terrorism is a kind of symbolic violence that happens in a context where it really has no chance of being successful. You can, you can fly a lot of planes into American buildings without actually defeating the American military. It, it causes severe social and psychological ramifications, but it doesn't actually change the reality that America is strong and Al-Qaeda is weak. But in this case, it, it ended up being militant rather than just sort of a kind of symbolic violence because it, it created Jewish independence. It did, it did work. Yeah, but the dynasty then became strictly a violent society. And a corrupt that, one. That actually was fighting fundamentalism. Uh, King Janaus, and, uh, who had the, that confrontation with the religious uh, group, with the rabbis and, the, uh, and other uh, religious fanatics. But they did manage to maintain, through a, a complicated form of diplomacy, Jewish independence. And really, in, until yeah, the, the, the result in 66, that was when the fundamentalists sort of won out again, and to yes. disastrous effect. Okay, so thank you all for coming. Have a wonderful uh, rest of your week. And we'll see you on Friday, Temple Bethanet, Sunday, maybe up at Whittier. And then Monday, we start our email series again, part two. Have a nice... Uh, Thank you.